Give ear to the word of God. Psalm 79, it says, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful uh, to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. The sentence of reading of God's word, you may be seated. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's, let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the psalms that uh, have so, such a varied uh, tone throughout. We have the psalms of praise and we even have psalms of lament like this that, that equip us as your people, as your saints in Christ to worship you no matter what our circumstances are, whether good or bad, uh, whether pleasant or evil. And so we ask this morning once again that you would be pleased to teach us your word, work in us by your Holy Spirit, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning, uh, Psalm 79, as I mentioned before, the context of Psalm 79 is a very dark uh, and awful context. It's that of the, the destruction of Jerusalem in, uh, by the Babylonian Empire, which took place around 586 B.C., uh, you might know the uh, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity around 722 B.C. before that. So they both uh, both endured similar uh, exiles and destructions of their of their place. Uh, this this whole section of Psalms we've been looking at uh, in the third book of the Psalter has a lot to do with the same subject or similar subjects of of uh, suffering and the suffering of God's people. And Psalm 74, we looked at a number of months ago, actually deals with the same context, with the beginnings of the Babylonian siege and destruction of, of Jerusalem. Both are Psalm 74 and 79 are written by Asaph, and they are both psalms of lament over the devastation of Jerusalem that took place at the hands of the Babylonians. So as we just read, maybe you read it before this morning in preparation for worship, uh, the death, the devastation that the psalmist describes here very briefly in this short psalm, as well as in Psalm 74. Um, you know, if you, it's easy to read them off the page, but if you to sit down and slow down and think about what he's describing, it's really disturbing. 
Like, he, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, kind of speaking in, in euphemisms. He wasn't speaking, uh, you know, exaggerating what was happening. He was saying exactly what he was seeing and crying out to God uh, for help uh, from it. Now, the anguish of heart for the faithful remnant that was in Jerusalem, which is typified for us by the psalmist here, um, it's, it's unimaginable. Like we, you know, the worst movies you've seen don't, give, don't do it justice to what he saw, the, the, the carnage he saw around them. The city was in, was in ruins. The temple, you know, God's house, the place where they worshipped and made their sacrifices and prayers was in ruins. And the bodies of the slain were everywhere. You know, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head how many people were living in Jerusalem at the time of that siege. I'm sur- sure some historians can give that number. I don't have it in front of me. But, um, you know, the, the, the bodies were everywhere and there weren't enough people left to bury them. It, it's a disturbing thing to think about. Just try and fathom what that must have been like as God's people to see something like that happen among them. Well, just as in Psalm 74, the psalmist cried out then, How long, O God? Psalm 74, 10. You'll see here in verse 5 of our psalm of our text, he says again, How long, O Lord? And then he says in verse 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation. So this destruction at the hands of the Babylonians uh, was ultimately a chastisement from God upon his unfaithful people that that were in Judah. And in the psalm, if you notice, the psalmist acknowledges this. He doesn't, he doesn't act as if they have been treated unjustly. He openly acknowledges that his chastisement was from God. He asks, why, you know, will God's anger burn forever? That's what he's talking about. And so what does he do? He cries out to God for mercy and for forgiveness in verses 8 and 9. And ultimately, he cries out to God for mercy on the basis of something that we might not think very often to pray on the basis of, but we should He prays for God's mercy on the basis of the glory of God's name. It was for God's glory that he asked for these things. Twice in verse 9, he asks for mercy on the basis of God's name. He asks uh, first for the glory of your name and then for your name's sake. And then even in verse uh, 10, I believe, he says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? God's glory, God's renown is what is foremost in his mind, even as he's suffering and even in his cries for mercy. Now that's the way to pray for mercy and for restoration. It's to acknowledge and repent of our sin and the sins of our nation, to plead for mercy from God, and to do so on the basis of the glory of God's name, that he might glorify his name in showing mercy, even as he had glorified his name previously in sending judgments and chastisements. May God be pleased this morning to teach you and I these things and work in us both to will and to do according to God's good pleasure in these things. Now, there, there are a number of different outlines uh, for almost any text of Scripture, and Psalm 79 is no exception. Uh, there are a number of good ones, but I, I, have, I have borrowed holy theft, so to speak, uh, borrowed in some way uh, a slightly modified outline uh, from what Charles Spurgeon offered in his commentary on this psalm. Uh, so first we're going to look at the psalmist's cry or complaint. In verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to see the psalmist's prayer or petition in verses 6 through 12. And finally, in verse 13, his promise of praise. So, the first thing we see in our text that jumps off the page is the psalmist's cry, his lament, his complaint. And that complaint, you know, when I say the word complaint, when Spurgeon used that word in this context, 
He's not talking about the, the, the unholy, sinful grumbling that we sometimes do when we complain either to God or about our circumstances. That's not what he's doing here. He's not saying we deserve better. That's not what's going on, but it's a complaint to God. You know, and in, a, in a way, that's, that's the right direction for complaints to go in some, in some regard. You, you pray to God in such a way that acknowledges uh, his glory. And what this is was this was a, um, not a finding fault of God for his providential acts of judgment and chastisement on his people. This was a godly complaint. It was crying out for mercy from God. Look at verses 1 through 5. He says again, O God, the nations, he's describing what happened. The nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the bird of the heavens, the birds of the heavens for food, and the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And then he says, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your, will your jealousy burn like fire? That's the description, his complaint of what was happening. The King James Version probably gives maybe in some ways a little bit better sense of, of the verse in verse 1 when it says, O God, the heathen... Are come in, have come into thine inheritance, thy holy temple. They have defiled, they have, they have laid Jerusalem on heaps. The, the nations in, in, in the Old Testament times were literally the heathen, the pagans. They worshipped false gods and idols. Anybody outside of Israel and, and Judah were pagans. You know, it's, it's difficult sometimes to imagine and remember just how dark a place the world in general was before the coming of Christ. You know, we take for granted in our day, many of us do, that so many places have the gospel and the influences of the gospel of Christ have been so, uh, you know, all over the, the globe. Even, you know, as bad as our nation has become in recent years, you know, the vestiges of the Christian faith that founded our, our country, that were, that were in use in founding our country and others as well, are still there. You know, the, the, there's still some remnants uh, of that, Lord willing, that will be revived, but but in, in Israel's day, back in the day, in the Old Testament, the whole world was in, was in darkness. The whole world, except for Israel, you know, some little tiny pocket among the whole, whole world of nations, was in dar the darkness of, of pagan religion and idolatry. And so when he says, the nations have come into your inheritance, he's really talking about pagans. And even their very presence in the temple defiled it. They weren't supposed to even be there and set their foot there. And yet they didn't just defile it by their presence. They defiled it by destroying it and, and doing bloodshed and violence to God's people. They had come into God's holy temple and defiled it and destroyed it. And it says they even laid waste uh, Jerusalem uh, rather in, in ruins. And notice, notice in verses 1 and 2, I, I sort of emphasized it in my reading of it, the way he describes who and what they attacked. Even there, he's, he's kind of putting God, in a sense, sort of on the spot. He's saying, you know, they didn't attack us. They attacked your house. He says, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled, not our temple, your holy temple. They've given the bodies. Not, he doesn't just say they've given the, our, our bodies uh, to the birds of the heavens for food. He says, the bodies of your servants 
and the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. He's saying when they attack us, they're really attacking whom? You, God. And so he's saying, do something. So even in the complaint, there's an implied request. You know, kind of like in the first miracle of Jesus in uh, turning the water into wine. You know, they're, they're, when Mary, Mary, his mother, comes to him and says, basically, hey, they're out of wine. What's she really doing? She's making an implied request. And she had the faith to know that he could do something, uh, which, he, which he ended up doing. Now, it's, it's difficult for us to imagine the horror of such a thing that, that would have brought uh, that to the mind and heart of the faithful remnant among Judah. To think of the house of God in ruins, the place of sacrifice and prayer and worship, where the people met to worship God together, where they had their sacrifices. It, it was utterly destroyed by a pagan army, as if a false god kind of triumphed against the one true and living God. That's what it would have felt like. That's what it would have looked like in some way, although that certainly wasn't the case of what actually happened. And think about this. Add to that the awful picture of the bloodshed, the death, the destruction that the psalmist goes on to describe in some, some detail in verses 2 to 3. It just sounds too awful to even think about. You don't even want to picture it in your mind, what it may have resembled. The bodies of the slain men, women, and children in Judah lying in the streets, exposed to the elements, you know, kind of just like roadkill piled up all over the street. That's, what, that's the way they were treated by the wicked. Now, with no one to bury them. You know, it, it's enough to make any sensitive, God-fearing soul shudder if you really think about what that means. You know, recently, uh, this past week, a pro-life advocate on social media who I follow, uh, they, they, they posted pictures uh, on, on social media of, of a number of babies who were butchered through the abomination of the practice of abortion that is so prevalent in our supposedly Christian nation. And I have to admit, I couldn't even bear to look at them. I, I, it made me sick to my stomach. I scrolled right past it. I read what she wrote, and I couldn't bear to look at the pictures of them. And somebody commented, and I think they were right. They said, every person who votes for a pro-abortion or pro-infanticide candidate should be forced to look at those photos at length so they can know exactly what it is that they're voting for. You know, we have many, uh, especially on the left in our political realm, who claim to be Roman Catholic or Christian and they are rabidly pro-abortion. And nothing could be further from the truth than say that they are God-fearing people if that is the case. And think about this. Are sins like that not the very kind of wickedness and depravity for which God visits judgment and wrath upon a nation? In other words, do you read Psalm 79 and say, well, they had it coming. Look what they did. But are, you, are we surprised that something might happen here? and the things that have happened even in recent days and years? Or do we imagine that having seen the judgments of God in history, especially in the pages of Scripture, uh, and many of those upon his own covenant people, like we're seeing in our text in Israel, that he will do any less in our own day? Do we imagine that God has changed and that he does not judge nations for wickedness and sin? Will, will God be mocked? No, God will not be mocked. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't take his long-suffering and patience with our nation as if God does not care and will not judge. He most certainly will unless we repent. Does the scripture not teach us both by precept as well as example that judgment begins with the household of God? 
That's what's happening in Psalm 79. Judgment began with the household of God. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, the sobering passage, and should be a frightening passage for unbelievers. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God will chastise his own covenant people this severely for their wickedness and sin, what will become of those who reject Christ and remain in their sin and unrepentance? In our own country, do we not see wickedness and perversion increasing, and even in churches in our day? It's disturbing to say the least to see. It's one thing for the world to act a certain way and to embrace certain things and perversions, but to see it in the church, and it's in many, many churches, far too many than, than we might like to think, um, will God not judge? And he would start with this church as well as in our country. Do we not see the beginning? I won't go into it at length, but read Romans 1 maybe this afternoon after you read Psalm 94, was it? Uh, there's your homework. We give homework here. Uh, but Romans 1 talks about this process of people not wanting to keep God in their, in their minds and embracing wickedness. And what does God do? He give, The phrase Paul uses, he, he gives them over. Gives it. You don't want to have me in your thoughts? Fine. But he gives them over to wickedness and perversion. That's against nature. Is that not becoming more and more prevalent throughout our society and even in the church and even in some reformed churches are starting to embrace this kind of thing? It's a, it's a slippery slope and we're seeing that uh, downhill acceleration going on even in the church and it should not be. You know, do we, do we in our day complain about the loss of our prosperity and freedoms, the increase of government tyranny, and corruption, the lawlessness that abounds on every side, and yet fail to cry out to God about the sins and iniquities that brought these things upon our land to begin with. That's the problem. That's the problem, in my opinion. We are right, and I think you are right if you are concerned. You are right to be concerned about the former, but we should all be much, much more concerned about the latter, because that's the cause of it. There can be no making America great again without a great national repentance and revival in our land, starting with the church, starting with us. You know, we all want liberty. I want liberty. I want my kids to grow up with the liberty that I grew up with. We all want prosperity, but there can be no true liberty or prosperity without godliness. Wickedness and tyranny go hand in glove. And the one always brings the other. We don't want to have God in our thoughts. Uh, something else will act like God in his place, and it won't, it won't go well. And so in the psalm, after a long time of suffering and chastisement and destruction, even at the hands, ultimately, of God, the psalmist cries out, uh, verse 5, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And that leads, thankfully, to the psalmist's prayer for mercy, his petition for mercy in verses 6 through 12, which is the second thing that we see here. That this is the right response by God's people in a time of national calamity and chastisement. You know, what we see here in, in the psalmist request is, is very similar to what we've looked at previously in Second Chronicles 7, verses 13 to 14, where God says to his people, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, 
If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What comes first? Forgiveness, then healing. Repentance, and then restoration. Always and only in that order. So the right response to God's chastisements, either on a personal level for us individually as Christians, or as a nation, is humble repentance and prayer. And that's what the psalmist exemplifies for us and teaches us here in this psalm. His prayer His prayer even includes what we call sometimes, maybe you've never heard this word before, imprecatory praying, imprecatory prayers or imprecation. And what is that? That's a fancy word for praying that God would judge the wicked, that God would judge those who are harming his people. Now, we might be somewhat uncomfortable with that idea. I know many find that very uncomfortable, that idea of praying imprecatorily against uh, the wicked. Um, but, you know, God, God uses these things and God gives us these examples in Scripture. Now, think about what had happened uh, from the wicked there. They had done all these awful things in Judah. And the psalmist in Psalm 79 acknowledges that ultimately it was, it was ordained by God. That it was a chastisement. Remember, he doesn't just say, how long are you going to let this go on? He says, how long will you be angry? This, this chastisement was clearly that. It was, it was an example or an outpouring of God's anger upon his unrepentant people. And God may have ordained it and used it for his holy purposes, which he did in chastising his people, but this did not do away with the guilt of those who did these things. It did not excuse the Babylonians for their awful wickedness and destruction and murder of what they did in Jerusalem. Just like Judas, when he, when he betrayed Jesus Christ, uh, was it foreordained to come to pass? It certainly was. It was even prophesied of, and yet he was responsible for every bit of it. God used it. It was a wicked act, uh, but it was still the guilt was still upon uh, Judas for it. Look at verses 6 through 7. He says, Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitations. So, and that word nations there is the same word that King James translates as heathen. It's the same idea going on here. He's, telling, he's asking God, you know, do something. Pour out your anger on the heathen, on the nations that don't know you for what they've done to your people. And you and I, that may make us somewhat uncomfortable, the idea of praying for God's just judgment. Uh, there are a number of reasons I would give. I won't go into it in detail here this morning. Uh, first of all, though, one of the main things about these kinds of prayers is uh, they cannot be self-righteous, but it's a matter of leaving vengeance to the Lord. It's a matter of entrusting yourself uh, into God's hands, no matter what comes your way. And I'll say this, you know, we might be very uncomfortable about it in our day, but if we had suffered anything remotely like they did in Judah at the hands of Babylon, I think you and I would quickly learn to embrace the concept and be much more comfortable with it. We're uncomfortable with it because we're too comfortable. If we, if we suffered the persecution that they had done and that many of the saints have done throughout church history, I think we would be much more comfortable and much more uh, in use of these kinds of prayers uh, before God. Now, notice again, this is not a self-righteous request. He's not saying we're good and they're bad, so do something and judge them. It's not what he's saying. The psalmist 
nowhere claims that Judah was innocent. He nowhere claims that Judah was unworthy of such chastisement from God's hand. What he does in verse 8 is he asks that God would not remember against them their former iniquities. He confesses and acknowledges their own sin and their own iniquity. The things that they, you know, these are the things, their own iniquities are the things that brought these judgments upon them in the first place. In verse 9, he asks God to atone for their sins. Concerning that request, Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, sins accumulate against nations. Generations lay up stores of transgressions to be visited upon their successors. Hence, this urgent prayer. Sins accumulate against nations and generations, you know, one after another, lay up stores like storehouses of transgressions to be visited upon the next generation, basically. It's one of the one of the main reasons when you're a, fa- a parent, a grandparent, a great grandparent, why you pray for your nation. You want it to be better for your children and grandchildren. You know, you think about the, the judgments throughout Scripture and even throughout history. Uh, sometimes I think we've kind of got an amnesia about what God has done in the past. Remember the, the judgments upon Egypt, God's judgment upon Pharaoh. It was twofold. It was a deliverance of his people, but it was also God smiting the wicked for their wickedness. He even raised up Pharaoh, Paul says in Romans 9, raised him up for this purpose that he might show his power uh, in judging him. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Was, were Sodom and Gomorrah in covenant with God the way Israel was? Israel wasn't, didn't exist yet. But God destroyed them for their wickedness. He had enough at some point, and that was it. Think about the land of Canaan. The pagan nations without the seven pagan nations throughout Canaan, that was Israel's inheritance. God judging them gave Israel their inheritance in the land, but it was also a judgment for their, their wickedness and their idolatry. God still judges nations today as he ever has. And so one of the primary motivations for prayers of mercy and upon our land is that the sins of the fathers often end up being visited upon the next generation of their children And so what does this mean? This means, contrary to what many seem to think, our sins and the sins of our our nation are not a private matter. They're not a private matter. They do great harm. They bring great harm on others and on future generations. And we have to acknowledge that and keep that in mind. James Boyce writes of this psalm, he says, One of its most important features, this Psalm 79, one of its most important features is an acknowledgement of sin. There is an acknowledgement of the sins of the fathers since it was for their sins that Judah was overrun and Jerusalem destroyed, verse 8. But there is also acknowledgement of the people's own and present sins. For the psalmist prays, deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake, verse 9. He goes on and says, this is important. The people were suffering the destruction of their entire civilization, politically, economically, socially, and religiously. Yet there is not the slightest suggestion that they did not actually deserve it, or even that they did not deserve having it continue as long as it had. Instead of excusing their sins, the psalmist acknowledges them and pleads for forgiveness, actually atone, it says, for our sins. This is not a self-righteous prayer for God to to, to lift his hand and to restore his people. It's It's a prayer 
that acknowledges the sins for which God was chastising them even then. And it wasn't even our fathers did this lighten up on us, as, as Dr. Boyce says. He acknowledges their sins and the present sins that were the cause of God's displeasure. You know, and think about this to think about who it was that God was using to chastise his people. The most wicked nation on earth, Babylon. That made it worse. You know, whatever. Think about whatever the bad guy nation is in our minds these days. Uh, I don't know who that would be. It's hard to keep to keep track. But one thing the psalmist didn't get to do was say, well, God, it's Babylon. We're better than Babylon. Doesn't get to do any of that. He, that's not the way he does mention. They don't know. They don't know God. They don't call upon the Lord. But he acknowledges their sin. He doesn't say we don't deserve it. They do. He says we deserve it. Forgive our sins. Atone for our sins and judge them for what they've done to your people. He goes on to point out, Dr. Boyce does, that asking for atonement for their sins was even more notable in light of the fact that the temple was destroyed. The place of atonement, at least outwardly, was no more. And yet he didn't stop asking for God to atone for their sins. I think that's very significant. Perhaps this is a hint of the, the, the faith of the psalmist that his faith looked beyond the temple sacrifices themselves to the Christ who is yet to come, who is, as John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29. And he does so by his death on the cross. You know, as Hebrew says, the blood of bulls and goats never takes away sin. That was, they were never an end in and of themselves. No animal shed, the blood of an animal shed ever actually accomplished the forgiveness of sins and the atonement for sin of God's people. It pointed forward to Christ and his death one time for all his people on the cross. Take, take note also of the argument the psalmist employs in pleading for his mercy and God's mercy. Two or three times, as we've noted in verses 9 and 10, he asks for God's mercy and deliverance, and he does so on the basis of the glory of God's name. Look at verses 9 through 10 once again. He says, Help us, O God of our salvation. Why? For the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. Why? For your name's sake. Why should the nations, the heathen, the ones who were overrunning them right now, why should the nations say what? Where is their God? That's what they're, they're like, hey, we're in his house. We just destroyed his temple. I don't see him doing anything. They were treating God as if he was fake, as if he didn't exist. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before their eyes. He wanted to live to see it. He trusted God was going to judge in the future, but he wanted to see it in his own day that God would make this right. In verse 9, he cries, he cries out to help for, and salvation to God for the glory of your name. He cries out for deliverance and atonement for, the, for your name's sake. And again, he implies, I think, in a, a very similar argument, even if it's implied, when he says, why should the nations mock and say, where is their God? You know, you might know, you might remember that this kind of argument for God's glory of his name in prayer for mercy upon God's people is something that uh, Moses himself did. This is a very common kind of prayer in, in, in the scriptures. In Exodus chapter 32, after the people sinned against God by the golden calf, uh, Mo, God was gonna, his, his, God's wrath was kindled against his own people. He just got them out of Egypt in slavery, 
And they're already worshiping idols and saying, this is the God who brought you out of, out of Egypt. And God's wrath was kindled against them. And Moses prayed to God. Do you remember this? Moses prayed to God, Exodus 32, verses 11 to 12. It says, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said this, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? There is the same kind of thing, your people, uh, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand, with a mighty hand. Here it is. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. You, get, you catch that? The same kind of argument that Asaph makes here in the psalm. Moses did. Why should the Egyptians say this? If you, if you, you know, destroy your people here and start over, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring you know, blasphemy to your name. Don't let, them, don't let them glory over you. Here we see a model of godly prayer for us to emulate, even in prayers of imprecation as well as in our intercessions. The glory of God's holy name must be forefront in our hearts and minds and in our prayers. Now think about this. You know, Rob just led us in the, in the Lord's Prayer. The glory of God's name is so important that even our, our comfort and prosperity must take a back seat to it uh, when the sins of God's people violate it and bring, bring blasphemy upon it. That's why some of the old Puritan writers say that there is more evil in the least sin than even in the greatest suffering. We don't naturally think like that. We think the evil is in the suffering, not in the sin that brought it about. You know, as, as bad as, as it was, the, great, the greatest horror in Psalm 79, we would probably think it's the bodies lying all around being eaten by animals and birds. We'd be wrong. The greatest horror in Psalm 79 is the people's sins against God that brought that chastisement upon them in the first place. And until we get that straight, we'll never view God's just judgments correctly. We'll never see them the way that we should. And think about this again, talking about the Lord's Prayer. The, the glory of God's name is so important and must shape and determine our prayers in such a way that it's not without reason that what is the very first request in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a request. When I was a kid, I think I mentioned before, I thought it was a statement of fact, like you're just, God, your name is hallowed and get on to the next thing. It's the first request is hallowed be thy name. That great pattern prayer that Jesus gave us to teach us the way to pray puts God's glory of his name above even your daily bread. The sequence, the, the order of that prayer is not insignificant. In other words, when you pray, give us, our, give us this day our daily bread, and God certainly has done that in abundance, even as rough as things are. None of us are starving. I know that I'm not starving. Um, but you know, when you put God's glory of his name first, it means give me my daily bread unless it means your name would not be glorified. Provide for my needs in such a way that, it, that, that is tuned to your glory. And if it's not, what comes first? God's glory. That's the way that we are to pray. That above all else, God's name might be hallowed or sanctified. May God work in us by his spirit that we might be a people who are more zealous for the glory of God's name than for our own ease and comfort. And may we learn to live and worship and pray that way as well. And that leads us to the last thing in our psalm. 
Uh, the last part of the psalm is uh, verse 13, that the psalmist closes with a promise of praise to God. So even in the midst of this utter disaster and the horrors he had seen before him, uh, he still promises praise to God. Look at verse 13. He says, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, he's still acknowledging God is their shepherd. The Lord is his shepherd. The sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. You know, it's like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what he's doing here. In, in, in you know, kind of as representative of the nation in this psalm. He says, we, your people, the sheep of your pasture. God was still caring for them, even though it didn't look like it on the surface. And he praised and promised to give thanks and praise God forever. The national calamity and fearful chastisement from the hand of God for the iniquities of his people did not mean, as much as it might have looked like it meant, it did not mean that God had forsaken his people. It did not mean that. He chastised them. He had not forsaken them. And this led the psalmist to look, kind of look ahead by faith to God's answer and the restoration of his people, which was decades in the future, and he promised praise. By faith, he knew he would still praise God and give thanks to him forever. Even in the midst of all the death, death and devastation that was all around him, the psalmist was able to praise God and to give thanks to him. And he enjoins all of us to do the same, no matter what our circumstances might be. That's amazing to think about. He gives us a psalm, even in that kind of calamity, that we're able to worship God and praise and thank him. God's redeemed people will give thanks to him. What does he say there? Forever, from generation to generation, we will recount his praise. God, no matter what happens in this world, God will never fail to have a people to praise him. Satan and those who follow him, they, they dream of stamping out the church. They, they think, so oh, someday we're going we're gonna to do away with it and it won't be in our way anymore, but it won't happen. God will always have a people to praise him. He will always, Christ will gather and protect his church on this earth until he comes again in glory to, to bring us home to glory. Amen. Let's, let's pray.